Today's episode is part two of COVID-19, telemedicine, and the future of medical devices. It is really interesting. But before we go there, a little housekeeping. First of all, I hope this finds everyone healthy and safe and unaffected by the coronavirus. I learned Friday that my immediate family has been impacted by the virus. Everyone is okay now. Thank goodness. More details will be in next week's podcast. I have been promising action on podcast transcripts for several weeks. The first transcript will be uploaded to the Medical Device Success website tonight. It is Episode 4, The Future of the Medical Device Industry in the COVID-19 Era. I will get another one done this week, and I will prioritize them by popularity in terms of downloads. It is a lot more work than I thought it would be. Podcasts typically have a lot of sentences that are more like a stream of consciousness than proper grammar. I tried to clean some of the stream of consciousness up, but some of it's still there. It's hard to avoid. My apologies in advance. Now, on to telemedicine and medical devices. Last week, Tanya Malik, CEO of the Virtual Medical Group, got us started on the discussion of telemedicine and medical devices. The pandemic has caused explosive growth in the use of telemedicine. This growth is pulling some areas of medical devices along with it and creating opportunities. This week we dig deeper. We go into more detail about telemedicine's role in managing population health and the mechanics of how it is delivered today. By mechanics, I mean the software and hardware. Of course, some of the hardware is made up of specialty medical devices, which is of particular interest to the listeners of this podcast. To help us today, we talk to Eric Bacon, president of AMD Global Telemedicine. Eric has a dedication and passion for effectuating change and increasing access to quality health care for the world's most underserved and remote populations through the use of innovative technology. He has spent nearly 20 years of his career designing new medical devices and telemedicine solutions that are deployed in over 100 countries and used in millions of consults. Eric and his team have transformed AMD Global Telemedicine from a provider of medical devices to a software development and technology company that can provide complete solutions in telemedicine. Eric has an extensive background in financial reporting, international manufacturing, and regulatory affairs. He is a board member for the International Society for Telemedicine and eHealth. He also serves as a member of a healthcare advisory group for one of the world's largest technology companies and is a member of the American Telemedicine Association and has presented at numerous telemedicine and healthcare IT forums throughout the world. Eric, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks, Ted. It is, uh, it's great to be here with you today, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, spend some time with you and talk about telemedicine and its place in the world today. Well, thanks again. And just to get started, tell me, who is AMD Global Telemedicine, and what products and services do you provide? Thanks, Ted. That's a great Great question. AMD today is a solution-based telemedicine 
company. And, and, and that can mean many things. Over the years, AMD manufactured medical devices. Uh, today, AMD is a software company. We manufacture software and we connect highly specialized medical devices into that software and we capture those images and those sounds and that data and through our platforms we transfer those sounds those images that content to a place that's not where you're at so at a distance which is in essence what telemedicine is so we're a software company and we're deploying these systems uh, around the globe and how many countries do you have installations in as of today, we're in 104 countries around the world, and we're, we take a lot of pride in that number. Again, being in business for 29 years, we have the longevity. So uh, are we doing business actively in 104 countries today? No. Actively, probably 60. But over the years, we've deployed telemedicine systems in 104 countries. Well, still, 60 countries actively is pretty impressive. You know, when, when we spoke the other day, you had a great story about deploying a telemedicine system in a South American country. Would you share that again? Yeah, sure. That was uh, probably the, the deployment that brought the most pride to AMD. It was our biggest deal to date. It was back in 2014. And AMD worked with our partners in the Ministry of Health down in the country of Bolivia. And if you know much about Bolivia, Bolivia is a very rural country. It's a very diverse country. So you have deserts, high deserts, you have mountains, you have very compact urban centers. So, and you throw in that with all of those barriers in a developing country, you also have challenges with, with broadband. So the infrastructure in Bolivia was limited at the time and they were trying to address the child uh, mortality rate. So when we worked with the Ministry of Health and our partners down there, in a period of about eight months, we deployed 334 specialized telemedicine systems. And so it was really, really, really interesting. It was, uh, it was fun to go to the country and, and learn what they're doing there. And I love telling people that, you know, we went into communities, rural communities, where they didn't have power. We did a, a live telemedicine launch with the ministers of health at the time. And uh, we sent out one of our uh, trainers and installers up to a, a small town around the Lake Titicaca. And they went into the clinic and it was in the in the afternoon and there was no power, there were no lights. So they had to go out into the uh, into the back and start the generator to generate power. And then we went inside the clinic and of course there's now this specialized telemedicine system. And in this village, they didn't have a village doctor, they didn't have a nurse. And we were able to bring in a um, pregnant lady who had not seen a doctor yet in her pregnancy. And we brought them up through telemedicine and we connected to a satellite. And within minutes, we were streaming live video conferencing from this remote village to the capital in La Paz where the Ministress of Health was. And so now this, this uh, woman who had never seen a doctor is now having her first consult with the Ministress of Health. And not only doing the physical uh, encounter, you know, how are you doing, how are you feeling, which would happen in every physician encounter, now we have specialized medical peripherals. So we had, you know, streaming live vitals and we were capturing high resolution images. And in this case, we had integrated a ultrasound system. And so we were streaming live abdominal images of, uh, of the growing fetus to the Ministress of Health in La Paz. And it was uh, very powerful. It was an overnight, overnight uh, success. 
And as I said, over eight months, we deployed 334 systems. And, you know, something we always say around here at AMD is we we bring specialized healthcare to the most remote and underserved parts of the world. And uh, we truly effectuated change in healthcare in that country overnight. And as we get farther into this conversation, uh, it's very different than here in the U.S. We have broadband, we have access, we have physicians. But when you get into challenging parts here in the United States or, or even in urban centers, there's not a doctor on every corner or you can't see a specialist when you need to. So we truly made a, a high impact on the quality of healthcare in that country. That's a great story. I, I enjoy hearing it again. So you've been in the business, the telemedicine industry, for almost 20 years, and you and AMD Global Telemedicine are definitely pioneers in this business. What was telemedicine like for AMD in the early days? Yeah, I, I always love to say this this saying. I always say it was like pushing a wheelbarrow uphill in mud. It was uh, it was challenging. It was challenging for a variety of reasons. Reimbursement. We always use the uh, the saying from the movie The Field of Dreams. You know, if you build it, they will come. But in healthcare, that's not the case. Uh, if you build it and they reimburse for it, there'll be adoption. Yeah, people will come. And now that's obviously in today's world that we're living in and dealing with this pandemic, reimbursement has changed significantly uh, in the last 30 days. But it's made a lot of progress over the last few years. But in the early days, reimbursement was a major barrier. Physician licensure here in the United States, cross-state licensures. A, a doctor in Massachusetts couldn't practice in New Hampshire and a New Hampshire doctor couldn't practice in Nebraska. These were real challenging issues. Acceptance. Today, you can turn on the evening news and you see the president or you see uh, someone from the Department of Health and they're talking about telehealth or telemedicine. So I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who is at least hasn't heard the term telemedicine. But 15 years ago, I'd go to a party or a barbecue and someone would say, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I work for a telemedicine company. And they say, well, that's great. What's telemedicine? Now people understand what it is, or at least conceptually what it is, and also acceptance. You know, before there was always that bias of, well, why would I see a doctor over, over video instead of seeing a doctor face-to-face? -face? You know, wouldn't it be better to see a doctor face-to-face? -face? And the answer is yes. The real short answer is, of course it is. But in a perfect world, you and I could see a specialist and see a physician anywhere we are at any time, whenever we want, for whatever we want. But that perfect world doesn't exist. And so what telemedicine does is it bridges that gap. It allows you to see an oncologist, a dermatologist, a cardiologist, any of the IST, right? At a distance, at a time that's convenient for you and potentially convenient for the physician. And that helps healthcare systems. It helps patients. But in the earlier days, acceptance was a big barrier in cost. I can remember I joined AMD in 2001. And of course, we had the internet in 2001, but your, the broadband that you have was very limited. You know, a lot of people were still using dial-up modems. You know, now here in Massachusetts, you can get, you know, 100 megs up and 50 down for $100 a month, where 15 years ago, you couldn't dream of something like that. So we were doing video calls over, over ISDN lines. It would cost significant amount of money. You do. I can remember a video call we did that lasted 45 minutes to Bangalore, India, 
and it costs $900. <laughs> now, there's just no way you could you could have any type of scale or adoption at those kind of costs. And and you know, like with any industry, device aggregation was very limited in the early days. So video conferencing through a codec was the early days. That was, you know, the 90s, the early 2000s. And people being able just to have a communication with somebody on the far end in real time and you weren't on television, you know, was something novel. And then it became, can you plug in a, a video camera and then can you do a digital stethoscope for sounds? And then it just continually has evolved to where today you can do a live ultrasound on a train going through a village at 140 miles an hour real time to a physician in another country. It's like mission impossible stuff. So it's come leaps and bounds from where it's been passed. But, you know, a lot of a lot of credit goes to the American Telemedicine Association here in the U.S. and their advocacy both from a policy standpoint, the International Society for Telemedicine and eHealth. They're a global society promoting telemedicine and helping countries, 100 plus countries as members, to, to uh, adopt telemedicine and helping advocate it in those parts of the world. And, and AMD takes a lot of pride. Previous, previous past presidents here at AMD have served as board members on both the ATA and the ISFT and some of our employees here at AMD have served on these boards in the past for, for advocacy, and I think we owe that to the associations. I'm currently a board member with the International Society for Telemedicine out of uh, Belgium, but we have 100-plus nation countries. So in the early days, it was challenging. Uh, and today, due to the pandemic, a lot of those barriers that we've been fighting against and continue to fight against have been torn down. So if we look at the, um, like your early business, was most of the business in the past, was it international? I mean, we're using your experience in Bolivia where they didn't have the doctors, they really appreciated telemedicine and they were willing to take the steps to install it and to provide it, you know, for their country. We didn't have that in this country. So were, was most of your business international at that time or was it mixed? That, that's a great question, Ted. We've, it, it has been. That's been one of the reasons for AMD's longevity. There have been a lot of great companies, a lot of brilliant people and wonderful technologies that have, have come and gone in the last 25 years in this space. And it's, they, they might have been just before their time. It, uh, they couldn't get reimbursed. They couldn't get revenue. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's, that's what keeps businesses going. So with AMD's uh, diversification, you know, maybe the U.S. economy's down or North America's economy are down, but the euro's strong and Europe's doing well or Southeast Asia's growing or Africa or South America. So, yes, it, it, it really helped us over the years. In the past, international in some years, it's it's been as much as 50 percent of AMD's business. I'd say today it's probably settled somewhere in the 20 to 30 percent of our business, but it's still a, a meaningful, significant uh, piece of our, our, of our annual revenue here. Okay. And so as we've been talking about this, um, COVID-19 comes along and telemedicine explodes. How has this affected AMD Global Telemedicine? We're very busy, and it's, it's terrible that it took a pandemic to bring awareness to telemedicine, but that's what it's done. And a lot of health systems are struggling significantly, and they were struggling even more two or three months ago because they still needed to see their patients, but they, it wasn't safe 
uh, to bring the patient to the clinic or to the doctor's office. And the patient didn't want to go there. So it's changed AMD in different aspects. So I'll take a minute to go through here, and I'll, I apologize. I love to hear myself talk, so I, I have a tendency to go on. I'll try to keep it short. But we we here at AMD thought, well, we fit within the whole virtual care continuum. So we're, whether you're in a prison or a school or an acute hospital or post-acute hospital, if you want to be mobile or in the workplace, our platforms fit within each one of these industry segments. But we don't look at them as segments. We just look at it as healthcare and how it's delivered. So initially, we, we had a very large push on our direct-to-consumer platform. Kerry and, and marketing and Ron and the team have done a tremendous job building awareness around our connecting care platform. And so we've probably seen a 500% increase in sales of our uh, direct-to-consumer platform. And that's a mobile platform that doctor's offices or uh, employers or physician groups that can provide to their patient population access to them or to their services over a phone or over an app or for the convenience of their home. So initially, we saw a big push there, but because of our global footprint, I mean, goodness, we we closed uh, an entire countrywide telemedicine deployment for a country that was doing little to no telemedicine in South America in 14 days. And then so we've done we've been part of uh, some large projects here in the U.S., state of Oklahoma. Uh, The governor there funded a program called Project ECHO. And through our partners here in the U.S., we participated in that, providing technology and software platforms tied in with a physician services group and going to high acuity sites throughout the state of Oklahoma. And those are just a couple of small snippets of, of programs that we've been here and involved in. And the other, we AMD, I won't say it's our niche, but we have a large footprint, larger than most, in the post-acute market here in the United States. And it's you don't have to turn the evening news to, to see that our most loved ones are also the most vulnerable and the ones being impacted most by this pandemic. So how do we care for them, provide quality care, and also protect them? So uh, we're also already providing access to those patients, to remote physicians at a a large degree prior to COVID-19. But post-COVID-19, the spotlight's been on that industry as well. So we've been deploying a lot of telemedicine systems to those markets. Okay. And in our last podcast, uh, Tanya Malik said that the ATA hoped to cement certain gains for telemedicine as a result of the pandemic. What changes do you think or hope will remain in place. Yeah, Tanya is a is a very smart woman, and I listened to that podcast, and I think she was spot on in in her assessment of that. We've had some wonderful gains from um, what's referred to as an originating site, and uh, for those people who aren't aren't aware of what that means, an originating site in the CMS world means you can bill for the telehealth services there, and really really basic terms. And if it didn't qualify as an originating site before uh, COVID-19, even if CMS uh, reimbursed for that type of service, if you weren't at an originating site, you were not going to be able to get reimbursed for that. So some of the recent gains of of having the home qualify as a reimbursement uh, originating site was was tremendous. You know, we're all in self-quarantine in our homes being able to access a doctor from your home and that doctor being able to be 
reimbursed for that encounter is tremendous. The, the, the biggest, in my opinion, the biggest gain that happened was the cross-state licensure barriers were torn down by the federal government. Uh, CMS was going to reimburse for this. So now a doctor in Massachusetts can provide care to somebody in Texas and et cetera. And that just changed the landscape overnight. So reimbursement from originating sites and then doctors having access to cross those virtual lines were tremendous. So those were, were massive gains. And as mentioned on that call, ATA trying to cement those gains. They're going to be able to and advocate to cement some of those gains. But in my opinion, and I would agree with uh, the previous assessment, that is we're going to lose some of those. The types of services that providers can provide is one that may change. The medium in which reimbursement is allowed will change. And what I mean by that is today you might be able to be reimbursed for an audio call, but in the future, that, that may or may not still be able able to be happened. So, and I think the cross state licensure issue is going to go away. I think that's that has always been a state level guideline, and I think hopefully, uh, I hope that there'll be more reciprocity across states. I think there, Tanya might have mentioned there were twelve states in the compact today. Uh, hopefully, that continues to grow. I know through their advocacy, it has grown from very few to. 12, and that's a major game, but hopefully that continues. But the, the, the cross-state licensure issue will change, and then the medium in which they reimburse for, I think, is going to change again as well. So I think what you're um, indicating is that people will have to go to possibly a more formal type of software program where they have HIPAA compliance and they comply with some other regulations as opposed to just using a you know FaceTime or Zoom or an audio call and so on. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's probably probably better said, you know, where today you can get reimbursed if you do a Skype call and you don't have security or, you know, you do a phone call and you can document that you've done it and get reimbursed for it. So, you know, patient protection is important. AMD through our platforms has always paid uh, special attention to patient uh, protection uh, and securities. So, yes, I think those those types of mediums are going to be change and they're all they're all coming along nicely but yes those those i believe the way that we uh, can conduct those encounters will be will be changed okay and can you give me an example or two of recent new customer orders that were would not have been placed perhaps before covid sure i, I was thinking about this the other day and you know so recently we just down in in um, south america one an account for a group that wanted to provide a direct-to-consumer platform for their union base. They had about 8,000 union members, and how do they provide access to them? And in this country, the barrier was is they were, they were a relatively young and healthy population, so they didn't qualify to participate in their the national program, and uh, they made too much money that they couldn't qualify on, on our state or government assistance, but they didn't make enough money to actually be able to afford health care. I think this would have happened anyway, but this group there is deploying a direct-to-consumer platform and offering their physician services to those union members to opt in, opt in at a very low cost, which in, a, in essence is providing access to health care to a, a significant population that didn't have it prior to. I, I mentioned Paraguay. That was uh, an opportunity that we won directly because of COVID-19 um, in response to that. 
the Project Echo here in Oklahoma, but many, many, many uh, smaller programs that we've been involved with, you know, in the Philippines, providing technology to go into urgent care centers uh, so doctors can see patients at a remote distance. I could go on and on, you know, I just, you know, the list, I mean, you know, here in the United States, Canada, the Philippines, Nigeria, France, India, Pakistan, China, we've probably sold telemedicine systems for COVID-19 response in 30 countries in the last two months. Wow. Now, the other day you mentioned a physician in the southern United States, I won't necessarily mention which state, that called up and, and placed an order. Can you give me a little bit more background on that? Yeah, Ted, that's a great example. So he was one uh, example, but this has happened a few times in, in the U.S. So you have these physicians out there that are putting themselves on the front line and they're susceptible to contacting COVID-19 and they may be asymptomatic. So they're healthy. They want to provide care. That's what they, that they do. But now they're also putting their populations at a risk. So this doctor in this state, his practice purchased a telemedicine system to go into his small practice because he had, he had conduct, contacted COVID-19 and he was asymptomatic, but he was contagious. So he's now doing telemedicine visits from his home because he's, he's healthy and he can still see patients and provide care, but it's protecting the patient and, and him as well. And, you know, and that's happened in a few places around the U.S. I can't remember the exact article, but our marketing director, Carrie, had, had posted an article, and I, and I may get the numbers a couple points off, but I'm pretty close. You know, when, when MERS and SARS came out years ago, 24 to uh, 26, it's in that percentage percentile, of the affected people of that disease or that virus were healthcare workers. And if you really, on a global scale, and if you think about that, are these people, these nurses, these doctors, these care providers, they are truly heroes. And I think when this is all said and done, you know, maybe it won't be 25%, maybe it'll be 20%, but 20% of the healthcare work is uh, being affected by this virus. It's significant. So, so through the use of telemedicine, some of these rural communities or in these nursing homes or other places where, you know, COVID-19 can literally bring them to their knees if they're caregivers uh, get COVID-19, being able to provide quality care from a distance can help some of these organizations and is helping some of these organizations from being brought to their knees. Right, right. Well, I just thought that was a terrific story about the individual practice and then also the experience you've had with Oklahoma and, and some other organizations. The Also, um, Last week when you and I were talking, and, and you and I should say you, Carrie, and I were talking, you gave an example of how telemedicine is actually working in nursing homes. Would you describe that again? I mean, nursing homes, it's this segment of healthcare where, again, it's, it's our most loved population. And if you take COVID-19 out of it, when you go into skilled nursing facilities, long-term care facilities, assisted living facilities, we have an aging population here in the U.S. When they go into these homes or living situations, there's, there are nurses or, or, or doctors at these facilities during the day. But evening comes, 7 o'clock at nighttime comes, and these doctors and these nurses go home. And there are still some care uh, providers there, but not specialized care. Not you know there aren't doctors 
walking the halls of most nursing homes at 10 p.m. or 1 p. Uh, 1 a.m. in the morning. So through the use of telemedicine, you're now you're now empowering that nurse who's out on an island on her own, who has to make a decision of, am I going to call this doctor at nighttime and wake them up and have them come in over the phone in the past, but today they can come in over video and put eyes on this patient and help make a determination if this patient needs to go back to the hospital or if they can be treated in place. Because for an 82-year-old male or female who's in a nursing home who already has failing health, the anxiety that goes through that person at two o'clock in the morning because they're having a health challenge to be transported to the hospital for something that they didn't need to be transported for is, is very harmful. That same example, that nurse puts a call out, the doctor then comes in over video and they can see that patient, they can talk to them, they can listen to them, uh, talk to them about their complaints, but then with having specialized medical peripherals integrated into that live encounter, that doctor's also consuming their blood oxygen levels or their blood pressure or their, you know, their, um, their vitals. And then they can make a, a more educated determination if that patient can be treated in place or give a better care plan to the nurse or say, no, this, this person is, is in distress. We need to send them out. And so we've been doing that. But now with COVID-19, and as you can see on the news every night, we need to be able to provide care into these homes in real time. And, and that's exactly what we're doing. Well, I thought it was fascinating when you described this the other day, and we also talked about the specialized cart. So the nurse is using a specialized cart that is put together by AMD Global Medicine, and that cart is almost like the doctor standing there. It was, And I'll have links on the show notes for all the listeners to follow, but if you go to the AMD Global, Med- Global Telemedicine website, you will see a medical devices area, uh, several different categories, and these carts are one of the categories. And then there's these peripherals that Eric was just mentioning that can be attached to this, uh, a cart like this. And it was just amazing because it's like having a a doctor standing there, but it's a cart and, um, you know, to help interact with the patient. Yeah, that's, we, we take a lot of pride in that. As, as we started this out, you know, what is AMD? We're, we're a solutions company, you know. Uh, we're, we're, we're today, we're a software company. We work with over a dozen medical device manufacturers. We do not manufacture medical devices. But what we do do is we integrate their um, medical devices into our software platform. So we, we always refer to carts or cases or tablets or wall mounts. We refer to those as vehicles. But the real power is in that software, and, and the real power that is in our software is we let the remote physician take control of that encounter. So the, the carts that you were referring to, our standard carts come with a pan-tilt-zoom camera. So just like if you were in a face-to-face encounter, that doctor remotely is zooming in on an eye or a lesion or a bruise, uh, an eye, etc., while they're just normal communications happening, but they're doing it on their own without anybody in the room knowing it's going on. And, and during that same encounter, being able to capture, you know, vitals and, and heart and lung sounds and EKGs all in real time, it's, it's very powerful. I can imagine. And since we're talking about medical devices, where do you see the future of medical devices and telemedicine going? That is also a great question. Where do I think it's going? It's going to continue to move towards more digitization, connectivity, cost 
containment, which then will all drive innovation and, and integration. So, you know, we, we work with large medical device manufacturers, you know, the WellChallenge, the GEs, the Etcetras, uh, the Reisters, and a lot of these companies over the years have sold these devices, and their industry has changed as much as the telemedicine industry has changed, how the how the data is output from those systems and the cost of those systems. So we've gone from heavy size-wise, cost-wise, limited connectivity devices to where now you can have a handheld camera that does multi-functions on it that's going to output on a USB with an 8 megapixel image streaming live to a doctor from here in Boston to a doctor somewhere in India, real time. It's powerful. So I think connectivity is the biggest thing, wearables, you know, how they connect to PCs, how much um, processing power is required. These are kind of technical things, but it all happens in the background. And I think we're going to start to see additional devices being integrated. So as I mentioned, in the early days, it was video, and then it moved into all of the things I mentioned earlier with X-ray and ultrasound and ear, nose, throat, etc. I think the next wave are things like labs. You know, going back to that Bolivia example, you know, you're out in one of these rural communities, there's no FedEx pickup, right? So if you have to have a lab drawn, one, it's unlikely you can, but let's say you can. You know, they're going to take that blood, they're going to then transport it to an urban center to have a lab done, but it could be weeks with a high cost to have that done. But I think you're going to start to see things like Quest Labs and Abbott Labs. They have these iStat type units where you can capture blood samples, get a lab within minutes, and then actually transmit that information to the doctor in real time on the far end within minutes. And now that doctor in real time can start to formulate a care plan for that patient in the future. I think that's going to be one of the biggest improvements in telemedicine and how we care for people in the next year or two on top of what's already happening. Wow. It's pretty amazing. The other day I was watching 60 Minutes with my wife and they were interviewing this nurse practitioner in Texas who is covering just a huge area. And it was making me think of all about, you know, our interview and our discussion. And part of the problem in this rural area was that some of the hospitals who have been crushed by costs and other problems are closing or have very limited services. Is it possible that telemedicine can step in to help provide more service to these rural areas in the United States? Absolutely. And it's, and it's happening today and we're, we're participating with with large groups. So there are some national physician groups here in the U.S. that are providing remote acute care uh, to these remote you know, hospital systems. So in that example, in say North Texas or West Texas, where it's a small population and maybe you have a 30-bed hospital, you can't have a radiologist on staff 24-7. And you, you're not going to have a doctor doing rounds 24-7 in a 30-bed hospital in remote Texas with, you know, maybe 40% occupancy. And with the rising costs of physicians and insurances and all of these things, these, these hospital systems are drowning. With the advent of telemedicine, we're, we're able to put in a telemedicine system in these remote hospitals, and these physician groups can come in remotely and provide care to that hospital so they can do rounds around the clock. Um, if something happens with a patient and they want a doctor to put eyes on them, they can roll the system in 
And that doctor can provide that care uh, to that patient on the floor as if they were there. And that is making a huge impact. And I, I can tell you, I won't mention names, but all of the of the largest physician groups providing uh, physician services, hospitalist services around the country are all looking at this technology because the other side of it is the human side of it. You know, if you're a doctor and you've gone through 12 years of med school or more and you get your, your degree and you're ready to provide services, I'm from the state of Maine, I'd love to go to rural Maine, but someone who grew up in New York may not want to take a job at Fort Kent Regional Hospital in Northern Maine. So by adding telemedicine into these remote hospitals, you're increasing access. And going back to a statement earlier, which has been a, a goal of everybody in telemedicine for years, is provide specialized healthcare to the most underserved and remote parts of the world. And that's that's what you know is happening in that Texas example. And I can I can tell you it's happening in in all 50 states here in the United States. That's great. Now, during our call the other week when you told me that you had been in this business for 19 and a half years and then Carrie's been in it for seven years and other people at AMD Global Telemedicine have been in the business for many, many, many years. Um, Tanya, who I interviewed last week, has been in the business the same amount of time. So she's another pioneer. And I'm sitting here thinking, how do these people find reward in potentially a thankless job, at least in the United States, where there have been so many challenges to introducing telemedicine as a viable concept and as something that could be really helpful. Now, you answered some of that in your story about uh, deploying this in other countries, but share with the listeners what drives the AMD global telemedicine culture. You know, I'll start our culture with our, our mission state. And I think each organization, if they don't have a mission statement, they should have one, right? Um, but our mission statement is shared throughout our team. And our mission statement is to, we em- embrace change, listen to customers, and create telehealth solutions that empower healthcare organizations to deliver care through digital technology. That's our mission statement. But I can tell you from top level down to the people out in the shipping dock, to our receptionists answering the phone, we know is a team here that we're effectuating how healthcare is delivered around the globe. We know that our telemedicine systems that we've done have saved lives because we have uh, firsthand feedback from customers, from patients that said this technology has saved my life because X, Y, Z. So we do. I'm, I was trying to think the other day, every company loses people along the way, but we, we have a lot of employees here that uh, have been here for 14 years, 15 years, 10 years. So there's a lot of pride in what they're doing. And, and it's a unique company. I mean, we're a global company. So when you even take the healthcare aspect out of it, you know, we're providing care in, you know, 104 countries around the world. When I say we're providing, we're providing technology to assist in providing care in 104 countries around the world. And I was just a poor kid from Maine, worked my way up in life and, uh, Never thought that I would have traveled to over 40 countries in my own life. And so the experiences you get out of that, being able to talk to people in different parts of the world and learn how healthcare is delivered there and and how you can impact that, and then to take those stories and come back and share them with team members, it's really powerful. It's really powerful. That really is. I think it's awesome. And for those people that are listening and wonder what telemedicine is doing or where it's going, 
What do you think this is going to do to AMD Global Telemedicine's sales this year? Well, geez, I'm sure some of my board members will, will be listening to this, so I got to be careful. <laughs> no, but it, it is obviously, it's, it's changing our business. We, in, in the last 35 days, did probably close to a quarter and a half's worth of business in, in just over a month. So sales are there. That's great. You got to know your audience. There's, there's a lot of reason why that's happening. You know, we're dealing with a global pandemic. Part of it is being in the right place at the right time. And But you know what, what I would say to some of that as well is we've been at this for uh, 29 years. AMD was founded in 1991 by two visionaries. We had the stick to for lack of uh, a word that doesn't exist. And you know, we, we were there through the, the lean times. We've educated an industry or participated in educating an industry on telemedicine. And, and now it's here. We're, we're proud to be a part of seeing what we've been trying to advocate around the world for 29 years is now playing a big role uh, in, the, in the delivery of healthcare. But I think this year, to say it, it's going to double our revenue from the previous year, I think that's a, an easy yes, probably, probably more than that. Wow. And, you know, it could be that New England stubbornness because my mom was from Bingham, Maine. Oh, and, um, I know where that is. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I tell you what, boy, she was a go-getter. If she had something in her sights, she went after it. So I, I think that's probably shared by a lot of people in New England and in the state of Maine. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap this up? No, we've boy, we've had a, a wide-ranging conversation. Ted, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about telemedicine and some of the, the special things that AMD is doing here. And I think if the listeners think about healthcare, think about it in the, the term of the virtual care continuum. Telemedicine now is medicine. And so we hear telemedicine, e-health, digital health, you know, it's, it's just medicine. And I think you're going to start to see, and when I say I think, we're starting to see uh, forms of telemedicine in every aspect of healthcare, whether that's at your pharmacy. Now you can see telemedicine in your pharmacy or at your workplace, on mobile apps, on your healthcare cards, in prisons, in schools, in nursing homes, in hospitals. Telemedicine is, is healthcare. And I think if, if anybody takes from this conversation, it's come a long way. It's doing amazing things. And hang on, because I think the next... 10 years of innovation are only going to make it better. Well, thank you very much. And as I told um, uh, Tanya last week, I guess I'll reserve the right to come back and interview you again in the future because well, just to see what changes have you know taken place and what additional developments there have been. Well, thank you, Ted. I'd be happy to have that conversation with you, my friend. The team at AMD Global Telemedicine knows that they save lives. Wow. It is a powerful and inspiring message. They should be proud. And all of you listeners can now understand why telemedicine is such an exciting business with so much growth potential. Question is, can your products contribute to telemedicine? Food for thought. Over and over again in these podcasts, we have talked about the challenge of revising the sales process in this COVID era. This week's immediate impact idea is to find ways to use guidance from your clinical advisory group as a door opener in the virtual sales process. It can be in the form of a short video of clinically based care advice that is related to your products that is embedded in an email or on a landing page. All this needs is some elbow grease. So get it done.
If you found value in this podcast, please share it and rate it. As always, there are some links related to the podcast in the show notes. Stay healthy and now go win your week. <laughs>